Hey everybody, I'm Mark D and I get respect. Your cash and your jewelry are what I expect. That intro was sent in by Paul Revere. So this episode is going to be about a movie that has uh, history. Uh, history's not looked upon it fondly. I haven't done much exploring outside of the normal podcasts and things that I listen to, and it seems that it seems that the consensus is generally poor on this metatextual action blockbuster directed by John McTiernan and starring potentially the biggest movie star on the planet in 1993, Arnold Schwarzenegger. This is Last Action Hero, and there is a lot to talk about. A great classic comes to the screen. Take thy hand, fair prince. Who said I'm fair? To be or not to be? Not to be. Columbia Pictures is proud to present the screen's greatest action hero, Jack Slater. Slater, you hear me? This is the lieutenant governor. Slater, here's what I... The governor gets here, call me. And Danny Madigan is his biggest fan. <laughs> Jack Slater 4. But tonight, a magic ticket... It's a passport to another world. ...will get Danny closer to the action... <laughs> ...than anyone ever dreamed. And you're going with him. Who is this twerk? And where is that smile on his face? I don't even know this kid. To a world that's bigger than life. This ticket is magic, and it really works. And better than real. You really believe that you're inside a movie, don't you? Yes! The bad guys are in there. I've seen it. On screen. Could I speak to the drug dealer of the house, please? Have a nice day. Have him killed. This summer, it's head-on thrills. I have killed people smarter and younger than you. Head-first excitement. I hate when it happens. He's got the ticket! Now I possess power. Real power. He's going over to my world! In this world, the bad guys can win! The door must still be open, come on! If I go, how do I get back? And it's coming at you from both sides of the screen. Where am I now? This isn't the movies anymore, Jack. Please be careful, things were different here. Damn it, that hurt! Arnold Schwarzenegger is Jack Slater. No! This hero stuff has its limits. And Jack Slater is... Everybody down! The last action hero. The big ticket for 93. I'll be back. Ha! You did not gonna say that, did you? That's what you always say. I do? I... There's... 
you know, again, there is a lot to talk about. There are a lot of ways to approach and unpack this movie. I'm going to make an attempt, an attempt. I may make another one at some point if I, if I forget salient points in this, but I, I guess the 30,000 foot view, the high level view, if you're in management is that this movie, a story by Zach Penn and Adam Leff and screenplay by Shane Black and David Arnott. It isn't a spoof or a send up, but an examination and a deconstruction of the blockbuster action movies from the seventies up until the time the film was released. And let's hold that thought for a second to, to run the numbers here. Released Friday, June 18th, 1993, it picked up 15 million on opening weekend on 2,306 screens. That was a tough weekend and Last Action Hero took the second slot and it was bookended by Jurassic Park and Cliffhanger, which were released two and four weeks previously, respectively. Hero went on to cruise to a 50 million domestic and 137 million worldwide on an estimated 85 million budget, which is, it's a loss and it is modest for Arnold. This is the 17th highest domestic box for a movie that he's been in. And there are, there are definitely lower grossing movies for sure, but on the heels of Terminator 2, that that's not much. He had a ton of juice after T2, but you know, investigating a little more 50 mil seems to be the average of Arnold's movies domestically. It's sitting at a 6.4 on IMDb, a 40% on the tomato meter and a 44 meta score on Metacritic runtime of 130 minutes. You know, and, um, you know, I don't have body count or anything, but that's it for now, I guess. So back to the movie high level, not a send up hot shots. Part D was five weeks into its theatrical release. And that was a send up. That was a fucking send up. I do love the hot shots franchise. I love you in wall street, but we're not here to talk about that. Hot shots is a send up though. It has more in common with Naked Gun coming from the writer of Airplane, Police Squad, and Top Secret, which are things that are near and dear to my heart. Uh, fun fact, I have a Top Secret episode somewhere, but can you find it? Because it is Top Secret. Anyway, Jim Abrams, also the writer of the Naked Gun series and Scream 4, wrote Hot Shots Part D. So he, it is the master of... Uh, ridiculous send-ups. Anyway, I, I, I need to find my Police Squad DVD. But this isn't it. Watch Andy Drebecca. National Lampoon hit the nail on the head, though, with 1993's Loaded Weapon 1 starring Emilio Estevez and Samuel L. Jackson. I'm positive that I've mentioned Loaded Weapon at some point. Positive. And that's a spoof and a half, and I, I love the hell out of it. And interestingly, it also has Frank McRae playing the captain of the squad or whatever. But Last Action Hero is not those. It's it's something else. You know, it, it started out with the movie in the movie being called 
extremely violent. Okay, I gotta turn the game down for that. It all started out with the movie within the movie being called extremely violent. That will give you an idea of how much of an edge lord this movie was initially trying to be. And there is an original script floating around on the internet that, yes, dear listener, I did get my grubby little mitts on. It's not extremely different, but it is different in important ways, in tone, in heart. It was uh, a first draft from uh, Zach Penn and Adam Leff called The Last Action Hero. And uh, I don't know that, as the kids say, it passed the vibe check. I don't think it passed the vibe check. Penn and Leff were the authors of this initial draft that got picked up at Columbia. And, and we can talk about them for a little bit because that was their first thing. They're hungry, young go-getters that shopped this script around and really marketed it. They got it everywhere. Every friend, every favor, you name it. They got it read and it finally got picked up at Columbia. Zach Penn went on to do a, a ton of stuff in the nerd oeuvre, so to speak, right? It, like Inspector Gadget, which was one of my favorite cartoons as a kid. Never saw the movie. X2, X-Men United, Elektra, X3, The Last Stand, Yeesh, The Incredible Hulk, I think you've heard of him, The Avengers, I think you've heard of them, Alphas, Ready Player One, and most recently, Free Guy, which I've heard very good things about, but it's only in theaters, and it's a pandemic, and I have children, so I haven't seen it. Want to, though. Adam Leff went on to do Biodome, a Polly Shore and I think William Baldwin vehicle. I saw Biodome several times as a child, but uh, I remember so little of it. But anyway, there is some distinct nerd energy here. And nerd energy can have several components. It's, it's a vector, not a scalar. And sometimes it's mad nerd energy. You'll see mad nerd energy, especially in fandom, whenever a woman or a minority is going to star in a movie where it's not expected. I dare say there's a, a tiny bit of that in this draft of Last Action Hero. Not the, the misogyny per se, because it's a, it's a trope of the genre that they are deconstructing, but more just mad nerd energy. Like, I'm an action movie nerd. Do you even get what I'm trying to do here? But there are also a lot of good things. I would say a lot of good in here and, and plenty of it made it into the movie. So I guess, <laughs> I guess I start with Hamlet. I'm not a Shakespeare type. I did just order Much Ado About Nothing, which was also in theaters when Last Action Hero was released because I was listening to a podcast I really like called The Arkham Sessions. And they were talking about Thor and it was mentioned that Kenneth Branagh in anything Shakespeare is great. So I ordered it, but I also ordered the <coughs> adaptation as well, because, you know, Hey, aside from that guy being trash to people, I do, um, I do like many of the things that he's worked on and I like the actors in this adaptation very much. Anyway, all that to say is I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about here. I've read Shakespeare. Uh, I, I, I read Hamlet, you know, I've read other Shakespeare King Lear, which I saw also a thousand acres and, you know, well, obviously Thor, King Lear a bit. And uh, I read Hamlet in school. 
I, I spark noted Hamlet as well in school. In reading a play, I don't see the play. I don't have the necessary frame of reference or experience to put that into action. I do remember somebody explaining to me some, some level of stage direction and how me finding it absent from the text, I, that, that broke the whole thing open for me. That cracked the code that there is stage direction left out of the text of the play and that it helps me a lot team. It helps so much. It helps, um, probably especially for people who were maybe not emotionally in tune with themselves or others and, and aren't following just the implied threads on the texts. They're not following the subtexts is what it would be called. But yes, Hamlet, like every writer trying to break into the industry, hey, let's spin Shakespeare. Easy. Cruise control to getting, it's cruise control to getting read. And don't for one fucking minute think that I won't do the same when the time comes. And this tirade about Hamlet, it, it, this actually features heavily in this draft, but also in the movie itself, in the themes and in the extended gag scene that I actually, I really love. The draft starts out with a quote, like a pull quote. You know, I don't know that this is standard when you're shopping scripts. I don't know that this is a Stephen King book with a bunch of William Carlos Williams quotes, but here it is. The quote is, the spirits that I have seen may be a devil, and the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. Yeah, and perhaps out of my weakness and my melancholy, as he is very potent with such spirits, abuses me to damn me. And the whole thing here, the, the, the main thrust of the last action hero versus last action hero is that Nick, the character in the movie that I hope you saw already, spoilers also, and this will not make a lick of sense will not resonate at all. Nick didn't exist in this draft. The character was titled the projectionist who has a name. It's, it's Lester, but he's always titled the projectionist and he is legitimately the devil. Like in that Hamlet quote, he is the one who gives Danny the ticket and he is 100% the devil. He talks about the stomach for vengeance, but not the power legit. After that gives Danny a massive gun. And it's basically the gun that Benedict is using in the movie. Pretty much. It is that kind of, uh, iconography of gun. It is that vision of gun, that concept of gun, but it's porcelain like the Glock seven from Die Hard two, which is a notable action movie and not a great notable. And that gun is also completely made up for the movie. Oh, and also the theater was called the Asmodium. I've listened to Ghosts BC before, but I probably haven't talked about them. They're also ghosts, just ghosts, and they have a whole shtick. They mirror the Catholic Church, but instead do a whole uh, Satan thing, with one person being the main character, and the main character changes from, I guess, album to album or proverbial season to season, so to speak. And the rest of the band is playing as, quote, nameless ghouls. That is actually what their, you know, bass, nameless ghoul, lead guitar, nameless ghoul. It's really quite clever. And uh, apparently they put on a hell of a show, pun intended, but I don't take that seriously at all. Anyway, the, the, the Glock 7 was porcelain. So that's how it got through the metal detectors. And that's not a thing, but it's also something light enough for a child to carry around. And that makes practical sense 
in the uh, reality of the movie. And I think they do make them out of plastics at this point. And this isn't a gun podcast, so let me just get off guns for for the moment. Uh, Anyway, Ghost has a song called Year Zero, uh, which slaps 100%. And there's a a chorus or whatever. And by, by chorus, I mean not the chorus but a chorus, like a group of people calling out names or, or chanting names or whatever the case is, all these, you know, demons or whatever. And Asmodeus is one of them. So I'm already clued in because I'm like alt metal dad. Cool. Asmodeus is apparently the king of demons. So the Budweiser of hell got it. Uh, Benedict at the time was Mr. Id, which is, is not an awful name. But the showdown takes place in an abandoned movie studio, and he doesn't actually use the gun. However, according to McTiernan, uh, there was a draft at one point where Danny does use a gun to shoot the projectionist, who is also Mr. Id, and that whole uh, devil and damnation thing. Yeah, that that goes away in the movie. That doesn't that doesn't exist in the movie. A lot of people got hands on this script, and had influence on it and that factor of it went away. I don't know that that's for the worst, but it is a change. Shane Black and David Arnott then came on the scene. I am an unabashed up uh, unabashed, unabashed, unabashed fan. I like unabashed. Sounds like me being an asshole, which I am. We know Shane Black. We know about Shane Black. David Arnott though, his, uh, his other writing credit was The Adventures of Ford Fairlane. And uh, I'll pause here and explain a couple of things. A Ford Fairlane was a car. They were on the Fox platform last I saw, but they stopped being a thing in the, the late 70s, early 80s. I'm not, I'm not fucking looking this up. They were a thing in the 50s already, to my knowledge, and, and a 60s Fairlane is, is a pretty happening car to have. Has a, a kind of a shorter wheelbase, not a short, not a short wheelbase. It sits in between the Ford Falcon of the time, which is small, and the Galaxy, which is very large. Anyway, that movie isn't about the car. It's uh, it's about Andrew Dice Clay as a private detective. Hey, and I cannot tell you how much I want to see this out of morbid curiosity. It's not a dig. It's not a dig, but I'm just calling him how I see him. Shane Black, though, this movie reads. Shane Black. And I'll editorialize here and say that at some level, Columbia wanted a spoof or a send-up of Lethal Weapon. So they hired the guy that wrote Lethal Weapon to do it. And this is kind of similar to the Tango and Cash thing. I think that uh, if if memory serves, the writer for, for Tango and Cash was this other writer on Lethal Weapon or maybe Lethal Weapon 2. It, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's unusual. It didn't end there, though. I don't have definitive info on on where they took the screenplay, but I do know that William Goldsman got a crack at it, uncredited. And McTiernan said in the Last Action Hero, the official movie book. This is something Bill Goldman brought to the script and something I had trouble communicating to some of the earlier writers. My philosophy was that the story can only be about Slater going beyond what was scripted for him. It can only be the fact that Pinocchio has some of the making of a real boy, and the cardboard movie hero is capable of some observations and action 
that weren't there in the script, that he has feelings and emotions beyond what the studio executives thought would sell. That's key right there, what they thought would sell. It's a very important part of that of that statement. I don't know how prepared it was for the movie book, but it is important. But that's the shit right there. William Goldman, and, and hey, look him up if you want. I'm not going to, you should, but he, he changed this movie's trajectory a little bit. There was a whole Hamlet theme that, that stayed, but they got rid of the devil, so to speak. But they kept the whole to be or not to be part of, of the theme. Hey, listen, perhaps the Hamlet theme is a little bit of a misdirect. And maybe this is actually Action Rosencrantz and Killer Guildenstern are alive. Like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, but, but action. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Anyway, uh, Tom Stoppard, call me. Anyway, there's a whole point where Slater's talking to Danny's mom all night and just having a genuine experience and having an unscripted conversation with a woman, with a woman, with a woman, singular, as women do not feature in these action movies much, if at all. And hearing classical music for the first time, as action movies do not feature classical music much, if at all. To be able to express a preference, a like, and a discovery of these new things. At that point, he's he's learned that he's a creation, but basically his god, the screenwriter, but also by extension, the extensive studio system involved in creating these blockbuster action movies, they have damned him to a life of routine, a steady program of violence, and tragedy. Jack Slater really has an existential crisis in this movie. And perhaps Goldsman really put a nail in that coffin, a nail that no one else could. There is a heart to this movie. McTiernan definitely played a part in finding it, regardless of production issues and how much he might say he didn't like it, which to my knowledge, he, he did say that, and that doesn't mean that he didn't like the idea or the concept. He just didn't like the finished product. My understanding is because it was edited up until a week to release, literally a week from, you know, the end of, of principal photography. They say that principal photography ended about a month or two before the movie release, but that's also a very truncated timetable. In, in our current times, we will see edit times of months to over a year. That's not unheard of. It all depends. But this movie got rushed out the door, basically. It's not a realistic timetable. It is what happened. And um, for sure, certainly, you will see some takes that could have used a reshoot or, or just another run at the line or whatever the case is in this movie. And that's okay. That is that is fine. The movie isn't perfect. I'm not here to tell you that. That would be a lie. Very few movies are perfect, and they are all called Black Dynamite. But have I talked about how I felt about this movie? I've been talking about things about this movie, but I haven't been talking about feelings, right? And I guess at, at this point, it's obvious that the production was fraught with issues. The script had various drafts. And it was very loose. McTiernan would um, would talk about it later. He'd definitely air out his, uh, you know, uncensored opinions. Uh, 
And for the most part, uh, everybody tried to cover up for a movie that they thought was subpar, even though it only had, you know, it, it was just a mess top to bottom and it needed to get out to theaters, but they were all very complimentary of it in the movie book. And I don't think that any of that is lies per se. I think that they, um, accentuated the positive and eliminated the negative and did not mess around with mystery in between. But for me, Mark, me, the, the guy on the podcast, right? This experience is very different. And I don't believe that I saw it in first run theaters. In my recollection, my first exposure to last action hero did not come from the movie, but instead from a scholastic book fair. The novelization is, is something special to me and I actually bought it again just to see it. There are some deleted scenes, but they're, they're only on the 4k disc, which I have, but I haven't watched because, uh, I don't have a 4k capable drive on my computer, but anyway, the, <laughs> the aforementioned extras are, are readily found on YouTube. I did not upload them. They're just there. And, uh, there's not a whole lot there. Like, yes, kids will flock over Jack Slater in New York because they think that he's Arnold, right? That's a deleted scene, and it, it wasn't a great scene, which is why it was deleted. That is how that goes. Yes, it lends some, quote, realism to the movie, as they say, uh, that certain uh, pedants may point out the lack thereof as a, quote, plot hole, or whatever they want to call potential inaccuracies in a movie, that the, the cinema sins crowd. But the scene isn't great and does absolutely nothing for the story other than to acknowledge that Arnold as Slater looks like Arnold as Arnold. We, an erudite and observant audience, have already noted this at this late stage of the movie. Indeed, the point of this story is that movies are fantasy. Another McTiernan quote for you. On another level, Danny learns that fantasies have their limitations. They certainly aren't any better, and maybe they aren't as good as real life. This is a massive takeaway from this movie, and I didn't get this as a kid. I really just thought it was rad as hell to explode into a movie and pop off on bad guys, as one does, but as an adult, wow, just, just very different vibes. Danny's dad died unexpectedly. He's a small town kid in New York City, an extra grimy version of it, certainly, but not necessarily a totally alien one, as some people might want you to believe. The city is completely gray. It is enormous. Danny is a small and ultimately powerless little lone bacterium in this giant, vicious organism that the city portrays. His fantasy isn't specifically one of violence, and Danny does run around with guns and whatnot, but it's not the violence that he's after. It's about having a father again, a, a father that won't fall victim to illness, uh, the, to the random mugger, a father who will always be there and who can protect him. And it's interesting because this movie, watching it as an adult, Slater has in Danny a surrogate son, a son he lost on the whim of studios trying to give an emotional core 
to a character through loss and violence, tragedy and violence. Again, a character never allowed to grow or to change. Danny is that change for Slater. Danny is, he's really into the gunplay when he falls into the movie, but he, he learns that it's not all it's cracked up to be. All of this really speaks to me. And it's another thing that McTiernan insisted be in the movie. And I know that I've mentioned McTiernan more than a couple of times already, but this dude was was really involved in this movie. As, as a director, he was really unifying the vision of this story. And I dig that. It's unfortunate that there were significant scheduling issues with the production. And it's unfortunate that there was a full court press for advertising that... Uh, probably just ended up disappointing people. A lot of people were expecting Terminator 2 level violence, but they got something decidedly less bloody than the original authors intended even, or possibly the underlying themes did not communicate themselves well to some people. I'm going to quote the, I'm going to quote the Ebes. Roger Ebert in 1993 said, there's a lot of action in Last Action Hero, but the underlying story never ever quite works. From beginning to end, the movie's about its gimmick without ever transcending it. I think that's unfair to the movie, personally. He, Ebert never turned the corner on Slater. He never cared because Slater was a fiction within a fiction that he was outside of and quite possibly above. And I, I realized that, that what I just said is potentially putting words in Roger Ebert's mouth. He didn't say these things specifically, but allow me some speculation. Maybe I, I think that he thought these things is perhaps the better way to put it. I suspect he was, he was too removed from it. Me as an, as an eight or nine year old already having read the book, watching this in a second run theater, the dollar theater, we used to call it. Holy shit, this movie could not have been any more geared to me. And even Ebert ad ad admits it at the end of his review. You know, I know that I've talked about it, but I'm one of these meta assholes. I love movies that, that interact and address the audience directly in ways that challenge the audience um, in a very straightforward fashion in that it's a challenge to the audience, but it's a very convoluted meta mechanism to do so. This might have been the starting point for me. But I, I, I cared about Slater. And when he came to the real world, he, be, he became real to me. That was a person. Yes, that's Arnold Schwarzenegger playing a character. And I know, I know this. But as a, I, I looked beyond it, I didn't need a prover, right, for the magic crowd. I didn't need a prover. I had suspended disbelief already the way only a kid can. And I generally still try to do exactly that. And that's the connection with Danny in this movie. And that's where people probably missed out. Ebert explains his thoughts further by saying, But the screenplay never really explains the plot of the Slater movie. And so there's nothing to get our hooks in. We see chases, explosions, and spectacular stunts, but they're demonstrations, not drama. My dude, my dude, you missed the point. If you've watched many of these movies, there really isn't a whole lot to many of them. To use the word many again. 
the greats of this genre excel because they have drama. But the stereotype is the opposite. The stunts and the action are the drama. It doesn't matter what the plot of the movie is. It's a, it's a caricature of these movies that did exist at this time, that had existed, that were recent even at the time that this movie came out. The stunts become notably different in real New York. They are not the bombastic bright explosions that we saw in Danny's Jack Slater 4. They're, they're brutal and unsexy. This is something I think that, uh, that audiences do rebel against in a lot of ways. I think it's something that has found its niche in art house films. The stunts stay grounded in realism until the dramatic finish on the rooftop. Can Slater save his surrogate son while being free to make choices in the echo of the first scene of the movie? The drama of the movie is that the character uh, is the caricature coming to life. The, the trauma of birth, essentially, at that point. Um, he's in real New York and free to make choices, but he's still that scripted character in our layer of the movie. What do we do with the choices we make? Do we make choices? Anyway, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a rant about a movie review, but based on general reception, it seems that many people felt somewhat similarly. And I think that Anthony Quinn's character actually does explain the entire plot of the Jack Slater movie. However, it is tragically pointless, and even Benedict gets that. Benedict is the other side of the Slater coin. Benedict is Slater in a mirror darkly. Charles Dance as Mr. Benedict is definitely my favorite performance in the movie. I'm not saying that Arnold was bad, because he wasn't. He did exactly what he needed to do, and I thought that that was the echo of actual Arnold. I thought it was beautiful. But I am saying, what I am saying is that Charles Dance was good. I liked it. Over-the-top, mustache-twiddly, hitman villain. He hit it on the nose. He, obviously, an actor of some renown, 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 and you now in 2021 or later will most likely remember his performance as Tywin Lannister in Game of Thrones. As unstoppably good as Jack Slater is, he is the irresistible force meeting the immovable evil of Benedict. And I love these characters and I love their choices. F. Murray Abraham as John Practice is a, a lovely, understated performance where everyone is huge. He knows he's a bad guy, and he's acting as the bad guy, acting as a good guy, and you love to see it. Austin O'Brien, child actor, takes on the role of Danny Madigan, and he brings he brings himself into it. The edit and the schedule was not the friend of O'Brien. There are a few lined readings in there that likely would have been cleaned up or, or given another go-round. But he brings the energy. He brings the heart of the movie. He is 
Slater's important, but Danny is the audience surrogate and also the the major source of growth. As a child, he has that ability. He has heart. He is the heart. He plays a beaten down kid who goofily kind of ends up in his favorite movie. It's a good time. Mercedes Krull, right? Uh, Mercedes Krull. I'm sure it's, it's German. Um, but I think she's also uh, a Cuban, uh, if memory serves. I will look that up to see if she's Spicer or not. But Mercedes is a not unpopular uh, name from where my family's from. Her dad was an FBI agent. How cool is that? Her father was of German and Irish descent. And her mother, her mother, um, her mother was of Cuban and Irish ancestry. I saw that in her. I saw that a little bit. I felt it. I sensed it. She plays Danny Madigan's mom, who I could swear has a name. And it is, uh, she does. It is Irene. However, uh, the, the amount of effort that it took for me to find this was non-trivial. I had to go back into the movie into the subtitles because uh, she's just billed as mom or Danny's mom, you know, which I guess tracks from the POV of a child. And there, there's a lot to be said in gender studies about how women are perceived by young men who focus on their mother and their mother's devoted to servicing their life or whatever the case is. A, a lot to get into there. But he's a child, so it tracks. It makes sense. Robert Prosky is an actor I'm sure you've seen in various things. And his portrayal of Nick the Projectionist does bring some warmth and some lightness to New York City. To Manhattan, specifically. Bridget Wilson-Sampras had her first film role in this movie playing Whitney, Jack Slater's daughter. And you've definitely seen her in something even though she wasn't as prolific as some of the other actors and according to wikipedia isn't in the business anymore wrapping up the main cast hey at least where i decided to wrap up yo wrap that shit up b is tom noonan who plays the ripper as well as himself and and it is a very cute gag tom noonan is perfect he seems at the same time in Possibly creepy and incredibly pleasant. But cameos. There are cameos galore. Let's run a few down here briefly. Sharon Stone as Catherine Trammell from Basic Instinct and Robert Patrick as T-1000 can be seen at the police station. Later on, there's literally a, and I quote, a black and white digitization of Humphrey Bogart as Sam Spade being paired up with another cop. And that is, that is actually my favorite joke of the movie. You'll see why at the end of this episode, or, or maybe why, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's better. I, listen, playing it by ear right now. Okay. Shh. Don't tell anybody, but I don't know about movies. I just like them. Arnold Schwarzenegger basically cam cameos as himself. He's, he's also accompanied by his, at the time, wife, Maria Shriver, and they, they managed to poke some fun at themselves, which is nice. It is 
pleasant. It is cute. MC Hammer, Little Richard, and Jim Belushi are a few of the other people that you can see in this movie premiere, red carpet scene, which is, okay, time travel. This is being, this red carpet is being worked by Lisa Gibbons of Entertainment Tonight and Chris Connolly of MTV, MTV News. Sylvester Stallone on the cutout of Terminator 2 is also very good. Uh, very good because Terminator 2 would have been extremely fresh in everybody's mind. And, uh, you know, notoriously Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger had a rivalry. We, I, we call it a rivalry. It is not as vicious as one might think, but it is a rivalry nonetheless. The sets are also pretty interesting in this movie, uh, specifically the, the rooftop funeral for Leo the Fart. <laughs> Leo the fart. Uh, th this movie's fucking great. I love it. it. That was a com that was completely fabricated for the production, and I mean, I mean, thank God because it's hideous. And I had I had hoped that such a place did not exist in real life, but it was built on the roof of the Long Beach Hyatt, and a working glass elevator was also specifically installed for filming. The police station is the enormous lobby of what is now Sony Pictures Plaza in Culver City. At the time of filming, it was called the Filmland Building or Filmland Corporate Center, as it was identified in the official movie book. This studio used to be called MGM Studios, but was acquired by Sony in the early 90s from what I can tell, what I remember. This building is, is, is kind of where you come in to do the studio tour. And I recommend doing it if you have the time. If you're in L.A. and you have the time, do some studio tours. The Sony and the Warner Brothers, I think, are the my favorite ones. Universal, not very good, but it has Universal Studios behind it, so it's more of a theme park. But Sony and Warner Brothers were good studio tours. I got to be on the set of Jeopardy at the Sony studio. I got to go on the set of Jeopardy. And it, it, it was impressive to me. It was a lot to me. Okay. It was a lot. It was cool. It was very cool. The music of the movie is very much of the time as well. There is original music as well as, hey, some more established classics. But basically, it's hard rock, like Danny put it when he falls into the movie. And that's a fun little joke. Uh, the, the, the soundtrack of the movie is what Slater hears on his car radio, right? <laughs> that's what's playing on his car radio. Um, it's very funny uh, that it is uh, diegetic when you're in the movie, but non-diegetic when you're watching the movie. And that is one of those meta jokes that uh, really captures me, really enraptures me, really involves me in the thought process of the movie, which again is probably self-indulgent and pointless. But I'm also recording a podcast on my own here. So I am the epitome of self-indulgent and pointless at this point in time. But that's why Slater's never heard classical music because he always hears the soundtrack of his movies. He finds Mozart to be beautiful, which it is a wonderful piece. I don't remember which one, not going to look it up. Everybody knows Mozart and it's another great, great callback, which there are several when Slater asks Danny, if that's the guy that John practice killed. Wonderful. Loved it. A plus on that really pedantic bullshit that 
makes me feel smart when I get it. So anyway, the soundtrack. One of my more beloved bands, Allison Chains, was on Columbia Records at the time. Columbia itself being a label owned by Sony Music Entertainment as of 1991. And they dropped uh, two songs on this soundtrack, either bespoke or just unreleased songs. And, and there's a lot of, especially when dealing with a label owned by a major label and things like that, and with a potential for, for movie tie-ins, there's a lot of complication as to how the songs come to be. But uh, they have What the Hell Have I, which has has some swagger to it and a steady 4-4 groove, which is basically the Jack Slater franchise, right? 4-4 is Jack Slater. And their other song, A Little Bitter, is a hey, unique, I guess. It picks up the energy for the chorus, but it isn't quite the Alice in Chains that I grew to love. And hey, maybe it feels a, a bit more commercial, if that makes sense. Like a Sony executive's spreadsheet, right, is what it feels like, calculating what the trends, what trends were hip in 1993, hard rock. It, it, it takes a bit to grow on you, but that, that opening of, of A Little Bitter is somewhat unappealing. ACDC is also on this album. They open it up, in fact, and their song, Big Gun. And let, let, let's be real. It's an ACDC song. I'll catch some, I'll catch some heat for this. I have caught it and I will catch it again. They all sound the same to me. Sometimes you want some meathead dad rock. This is exactly that. And that's okay. Sometimes I just listen to ACDC on repeat because that's what plants crave. But like shoot to thrill is super hype. There's a bunch of songs that are hype from ACDC. This song is kind of hype, and it is um, it is ostensibly about having a large penis. What hell have I from Alice in Chains hit the 19th spot on the U.S. Billboard Mainstream Rock Chart. Big Gun hit number one, like the song says. There are more songs here. This soundtrack was actually super stacked. Queensryche. Or, or Queensrich? Queen, Queensryche, I want to say, because it's a Y with an umlaut. Queensryche has a song co-written with score composer Michael Kamen. Kamen, uh, writer, Japanese show, motor, motorcycle? No. Uh, it, anyway, the song is called Real World, and it surprisingly hit number three on the Billboard Mainstream Rock chart. It isn't really for me, but hey, yes, looking at it objectively, it sounds extremely 1993. Michael Kamen also contributed music to Def Leppard's song, Two Steps Behind, which I am certain, certain you must have heard somewhere, probably by accident. A cool note is that it's the acoustic version that has Kamen featured on strings, and this was unique to the last Action Hero soundtrack for many years. I can almost 100% guarantee that this was by design. People buying the album and not getting that acoustic version would then buy the last Action Hero soundtrack so they could put it on their totally badass 100% 
success rate make-out mixtapes. And then they would send it to their crush or whatever. 1993 was like that, team. I, I, I remember it. I don't know that you do. But I miss mixtapes. Spotify playlists, don't uh, they don't quite have the same charm, but they have infinitely more reach. Moving right along, I do want to talk about Megadeth's Angry Again, which uh, was recording... Ooh, how? Whoa! Recording! Which was recorded during the production of Countdown to Extinction, but was released exclusively on the Last Action Hero soundtrack. It itself is also extremely a Megadeth song. Whatever whatever vibe you associate with this era of Megadeth, it is, it is exactly that. It is a lot of it. Tesla has another original song called Last Action Hero that you'd, you'd think would have been original to the movie, but it, it, it was actually a pitch for us, a spinoff band with personas. And uh, nope, nope, that's not true. This release preceded the release of their 1994 album, Bust A Nut. Bust A Nut. B-U-S-T-A-N-U-T. And that is, I swear to God, that is what it's called. And it is a glam jam. Glam rock. The bullshit from the 80s. It's called a bust a nut. It's this is like cherry pie on stupid. You want it? You got it. Then and this is the last song from the soundtrack that I'll talk about and and I skipped a few, trust me. But of of all people to show up on, on the track Jack and the Ripper, genius title, is Buckethead. Buckethead is uh is definitely a weird dude. But he can he can wheedle and he can deedle on a guitar, among other things, for sure. It's got Michael Kamen and the Los Angeles Rock and Roll Ensemble on there, so it's a bit more of a production. Anyway, this this album, the soundtrack was super stacked and hit number seven on the Billboard charts, which is potentially something that we will never see again. I have not given one shit about a soundtrack album in I don't know how many years. I, 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 you know, and that's not actually true because I just bought the reissued Hacker soundtrack, but something at this scale with this much original music being this successful, it, it may not happen in mainstream uh, Billboard charts ever again. There, there was a lot on this soundtrack. I wanted to be more brief, but I'm, I'm still shocked that almost everything mentioned was original music for the film, or at the very least, not released otherwise. I am shooketh. And I've been running my mouth for a bit, but there is yet more that I'd like to touch upon. I think that this movie is strong thematically. I think that it started strong and it ended still in the strong category, if only by being very overt with some uh, themes and despite intense production issues. Like, did you know that they, they filmed the Times Square movie premiere the day after the World Trade Center bombing and they were about to inflate a 40-foot Jack Slater with dynamite in his hand? Talk about bad timing. 
They had to adjust that motherfucker right there on the scene and fabricate the rudimentary wallet and badge that the balloon had in his hand. Why dynamite, you may ask? Because of the dynamite in the car chase, old chum, old pal, old boy. Pip, pip, cheerio. Because of the dynamite that Jack Slater shoots in midair, which blows Danny into the movie. It wasn't that initially in the first draft of the, the, in the first draft of the movie, the Asmodium warped and Danny just got sucked into the screen because as, as one does, I feel in my stupid parasocial amateur fan bones that the dynamite came in during the time that Shane Black and David Arnott were working on this. It feels Shane Blackish. Shane Black again to gush really is a setup and payoff machine, and he is set to referential on this movie. The hat tips, the Chekhov's guns, the echoes, all of that. It feels like him. It feels like kiss, kiss, bang, bang. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Feel free to, to at me on Twitter at cool Mark D cool with a C and Mark with a K. But I think that it's, it's him or a combination of him and them, right? So, so Shane Black and David are not. It is this strange loop of art imitating life, imitating art, and it really, really satisfies me. Life doesn't allow for casual travel into and out of movies or, or the movie dimension or the fantasy dimension or, or whatnot. Danny had this experience, this experience, and it definitely changed him. He's better for it. But it's just that. It's in the past. Danny is growing up, and this is part of it, unfortunately. Losing his father early. Losing that comfort. Losing his home. That hurt. I know it did. It clearly shows. He's cutting school to lose himself in movies. But accepting that, that Jack Slater lives in movies is what shows growth. Danny has, has learned to be brave, to be confident, to take responsibility. Slater has learned about having choice and being free, you know, from what we see at the end. I will accept that this proves to be unusual for a movie that is, um, you know, released on thousands of screens. However, 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 it's a fucking metaphor. Okay. It's, it's a metaphor nitpicking at this point is just the innumerable YouTube videos wondering what happened to the alien in annihilation. Holy shit. It's a metaphor. The movie went past the selling of a child's soul to the devil and ended up all the way at the coping mechanisms and the growth and of that spectrum of that continuum, right? This child isn't fighting for their soul. They are finding out what it is to, to be, to exist, to have a life outside of what their childhood should have been. 
yes, the movie was rushed. Yes, a lot of people have problems with it, including people who worked on it. Would I like to see McTiernan take time to make this movie? Absolutely. Did he get that opportunity? Absolutely not. So there we have it. In retrospect, I still think that the movie works. I just can't necessarily separate that from my bias. I've always liked this movie, and as is my way, now that I've I've dug into it, I actually like it more. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people talk about the action movie cliches in the movie, but they're, they are played very specifically and intentionally as cliches. F. Murray Abraham calls it out in an interview. He says, the cliches are the basis from which the surprises spring. McTiernan even says something similar, calling the subversion of genre cliches theatrical jujitsu. It's very elegant, if I may say so. Last Action Hero was billed as an action movie. Shit. Billed. They even fucking plastered the name of the movie on the side of a goddamn rocket going to space. I mean, yeah, I don't know that being the first advertisement in space was something to aspire to. Uh, But this isn't the movie that the advertising made it seem. This isn't the Naked Gun or Loaded Weapon 1 either. It's it's more of a buddy movie with a kid adventure in it. It's something in the middle of all those things. And I say kid adventure because, you know, Danny's like 14. He can't get into anything too crazy, but he, he legitimately has his home invaded and he is, he is robbed and dehumanized. Handcuffed. To, to a pipe and forced to fish the key out of a toilet bowl. And I love that the key makes a comeback. Don't get me wrong. Like there's, there's a lot to it. It plays, but it is, it is dark. This boy is down in the dumps. He is powerless. And there are kids that go through exactly this. There are kids who are feeling this way through different circumstances. Maybe I was feeling this way at the time. Maybe that's why this movie spoke to me. Maybe people missed that. I just came off of watching Tango and Cash, and uh, hey, holy hell, was that a train wreck. This train wreck, the train wreck of Last Action Hero, and as uh, characterized by other people, not by me, this one took a little bit of a different dynamic. Apparently, right, and this is, you know, kind of rumor mill kind of things here say, apparently the original draft was thought to be, and I quote, not professionally executed, whatever the fuck that means, because I've read the first draft of the movie and it's a movie. It is, uh, it's very dark. It is, uh, foreboding. It is cynical, but that's a draft of a movie and it's not so dissimilar from the one that we saw. And on top of that, apparently Shane Black, when asked about working on Last Action Hero, said he, quote, hated it. Hated it. It looks like, looks like perhaps it was executive overcorrection or executive involvement in this movie. Uh, William Goldsman and Carrie Fisher 
had passes at the script before it coming back to Shane. Perhaps film by committee isn't the way to go, but I also am somewhat unsure of the mechanics of this process. Shane Black and David Arnott both have screenplay credits, so it, w- it would imply that they did the majority of the lift, right? There are rules that the WGA has as to what constitutes a credit. But perhaps it, it wasn't that. Perhaps it was the lack of opportunity to work around the asks from the studio. Regardless, shooting was fast and the edit was basically immediate, and then the movie hit release. Despite all of that, this movie got made, and it speaks to people. I'm not coming in with a hot take here. In doing the research and in talking with friends, it seems that a lot of people have rethought or at least revisited Last Action Hero. Bad screenings of a work print or bad review cards, they don't have an impact 28 years later. The fact that this movie got gutted in the box office by Jurassic Park on launch and then in its second week by Sleepless in Seattle, it doesn't matter. The tawdry act of putting the name of the movie on a rocket has no impact whatsoever. We in 2021, we are beyond that. We're past that. The movie definitely, it didn't end action flicks though. There, It is not the last action hero. Arnold went on to star in True Lies as a follow-up and that movie is also one of my treasured childhood action films. But even then, the idea of the action franchise stayed alive. Just ask Jason Bourne. I realized in the edit that I didn't talk about John McTiernan at all. I mean, he's he's very famous in, in his career. Movies like Predator, Die Hard, The Hunt for Red October, Die Hard with a Vengeance, and the remake of The Thomas Crown Affair, which I remember liking, even though Sex on a Staircase, even between people as attractive as Rene Russo and Pierce Brosnan, it, uh, it seems distinctly unappealing. He has 12 directing credits, which, in the grand scheme of things, it isn't a whole lot. There are vastly more prolific directors out there, but... I will say that he is an interesting director. He is 70 as of this recording, but he was born in Albany, New York in 1951. His father apparently was both an actor and a lawyer. It's fitting that he ended up going to Juilliard and went on to achieve an MFA from the AFI Conservatory, which is nothing to shake a stick at. Although degrees in education are not the end-all be-all in film. I would say that uh, this both does and does not come across in hearing him speak. He's not taciturn. He's not curt or rude. But perhaps he is blunt. And that's that's a different look. He's definitely gone through different periods of his career. After the three movie span of Predator... Die Hard and The Hunt for Red October. He was at the at the pinnacle of dude movies at the peak. And these are good movies outside of that, right? They're, they're good movies. But that's what makes his, his work stand out. One of my favorite insights is one from The Hunt for Red October where the Soviet soldiers or seamen begin the movie in Russian 
with subtitles or just Russian, then Russian with subtitles. And then as the protagonist understands them better, they eventually speak English so that the audience understands them better. And uh, it humanizes them. It humanizes the Russian crew. They are, they are human after all. And it brings them into the audience as language and culture are barriers. There's a conversation where they are talking about what they'll do when they, they defect. And uh, somebody says, uh, you know, perhaps a recreational vehicle, which is a very funny thing to say in a Russian accent. But um, that is very human as to what somebody will do. That is the American dream that is in the movie. I'm not saying that that was McTiernan's idea to put that in the movie. But I am saying that he was at least smart enough to sign off on it, right? It does show a very keen eye on how people relate to each other. Maybe he learned that there. Maybe he already knew it. Maybe he discovered it. I also think that having Sean Connery in the part of a Soviet captain also played a part in trying to get the Russian crew to speak English at some point. But again, it is a very graceful and insightful solution to a number of problems. Anyway, he's not rude, right? He can be affable and even gregarious at times. I'm, I'm listening to him on the Dan Lebetard show. And while I don't necessarily recommend listening to the Dan Lebetard show, at least on a regular basis, it, it definitely has on more than one occasion been very entertaining. Levitard is like the chaotic neutral of sports radio, while The Ringer and Bill Simmons are like the true neutral. I recommend The Ringer much more, and if you want a mix of sports radio and movies, I do recommend The Rewatchables. Uh, but McTiernan is definitely reading the room and finding it welcoming on The Levitard Show, which it is. They're mostly concerned with the Carl Weathers and Arnold Schwarzenegger handshake, and they aren't they aren't out to get him, right? But I also found a CNN interview. Uh, you know, hey, all links in the show notes from, from when he just got out of jail. Yeah, McTiernan is a, a powerful man in Hollywood who, who went to prison for a year. He went to prison during what might be called the sunsetting of his career, however. And it had to do with a private investigator that was, you know, tapping phones or, or threatening and blackmailing people. I'm not 100% sure. I'm not very concerned with the specifics to be honest but um he didn't go to jail for anything that happened he went to jail for perjury really after a years long legal battle as mctiernan declined to disclose to the fbi that he had hired this private investigator twice he only admitted to hiring him once this had his career on the skids from 2006 onward and he did end up declaring bankruptcy during his time in prison. He came out different. He came out changed. Not by violence, but by a change of perspective. McTiernan had obviously been sensitive to the plot and the plight of his characters, but he, as Federal District Judge Dale S. Fisher said, had, quote, lived a privileged life, end quote, during sentencing. That all changed. The new view of prison as a system that unevenly and unfairly prosecutes and incarcerates people of color as fallout from the war on drugs, it really struck him. And you, listener, are, are free to evaluate on that on your own. I'm not 
making an analysis of his statements here, but I'm also not disagreeing. That's not what this podcast is for. Just saying that this craggy, perhaps intimidating, absolute juggernaut of a director didn't do what one might think from from seeing him, from perceiving him from his IMDb page or whatever the case is. He didn't spawn three production companies or pump out a movie a year. From what I can see, he, he picked and chose and he was involved in his movies earnestly and honestly. That didn't continue to serve him after the Thomas Crown Affair, which was probably his last widely accepted good movie he made. But perhaps the industry was changing under him too. Maybe there were other circumstances. The Hollywood Reporter ran an article by Tatiana Siegel titled, What Happened to Diehard Director John McTiernan? And in that she calls McTiernan one of Hollywood's most, quote, despised people. This is clearly before the open secrets of Harvey Weinstein and Scott Rudin, among others, became public. Maybe there are things about McTiernan that are open secrets that I just don't know about. The caption for McTiernan's photo, which uh, I can't see the photo, it can't be retrieved from their site at this time, says, if you have seen this man, please keep any recording devices out of reach. The implication there is that the worst thing that he did was record someone, which he did not record someone. He may have knowingly or unknowingly hired a person who would record them. Hey, there's a lot of nuance there, a lot of room to figure out the things. If you're going to write a book about it, let me know. I'll read it just because I'm curious. But that's not the point. That's just a little bit about John McTiernan, of which I neglected to mention basically at all. I said McTiernan probably five or ten times, but didn't go into it at any point. And just to kind of round things up, uh, you know, I, I haven't talked about Arnold much at all, but the former action star, restaurateur, and governor of California has had a long and storied life that, uh, that might be an, an episode all on its own. But back to Last Action Hero. Last Action Hero was, was not understood at the time that it came out. There was, in my opinion, no room for empathy in an action movie at the time. Entertainment Weekly said it was a stupid, generic slab of action bombast that keeps reminding us it's a stupid, generic slab of action bombast. And that is, I guess, illustrative of popular movie criticism at the time. So, yeah, I just, I, I, I think that the people weren't ready for it. The, the critics weren't ready for it. The marketing did not serve it. It's a... Uh, it released behind Jurassic Park, in between Jurassic Park and Sleeveless in Seattle. Oh boy, it had a bad time. The movie had a bad time, but I like this movie. Uh, I don't know if I summarized my final thoughts uh, already because I'm not too far into editing this before I had to record this pickup because I've just, you know, fucking neglected to mention John McTiernan. Uh, as always, you can catch me at Cool Mark D on Twitter, Cool with a C and Mark with a K. That is the easiest way to go to get a hold of me if you just at me uh, i don't think i have open dms because weirdos but just at me and, and we can start a conversation if you have any issues any questions any comments any suggestions just at me on twitter again best way to get a hold of me for any reason and uh you know be nice to people just be considerate just have fun with it 
whatever it is, just have fun. I'll see you next time. I have one more episode that's going to come out before I go on hiatus for a bit. Uh, during that hiatus, I may be able to plan for November, but I'm not sure about that. So no promises, but I think that I might have some stuff ready for November. Maybe my next episode will come out in November, which is a bit of a spoiler. But you know what? I think that'll probably be better if I just don't rush it and I get a couple eps for November, as many as I can, right? Up to four or however many weeks in November. And I'll see how things go. I'm, I'm working on uh, two other podcasts right now. And uh, none of them have seen the light of day just yet, but they, the production is, is ongoing. And it's hard. It's hard. It's hard with uh, kids. It's hard with a job. It's hard with, you know, the entire family uh, situation, the at number of hours in the day, and just how how long things take. But I'm I'm not losing motivation. I am losing perhaps a little bit of confidence, though. So we'll see how it goes. We'll see which one of those two or both, if they both come out, or what the case is. They're very ambitious, both of them. So I guess wish me luck. See you. The spirit that I have seen may be a devil, and the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. Yea, and perhaps out of my weakness and my melancholy, as he is very potent with such spirits, abuses me to damn me. And hey, everybody, that was just me trying it out me uh playing <laughs> real actor right um but what follows is the whole soliloquy read by an actor and uh it's hamlet maybe you're not into it but uh maybe you find something new hey who knows enjoy and see ya in november i so goodbye to you now i am alone oh what a rogue and pleasant slave am i it is not monstrous that this player here, but in a fiction, in a dream of passion, could force his soul so, to his own conceit, that from her walking all his visage wand, tears in his eyes, distraction in his aspect, a broken voice, and his whole function suiting, with forms to his conceit, and all for nothing! For Hecuba! What's Hecuba to him, or he to Hecuba? That he should weep for her? What would he do had he the motive and the cue for passion that I have? He would drown the stage with tears and cleave the general ear with horrid speech, make mad the guilty and appall the free, confound the ignorance and amaze indeed the very faculties of eyes and ears. Yet I, a dull and muddy-meddled rascal, peak like John of Dreams, unpregnant of my cause, and can say nothing, no. Not for a king, upon whose property and most dear life a damned defeat was made. Am I a coward? Who calls me villain, breaks my pate across, plucks off my beard and blows it in my face, tweaks me by the nose, gives me the lie i' the throat as deep as to the lungs? Who does me this? Ha! Huh. Swounds, I should take it. For it cannot be but I am pigeon-livered and lack gall to make oppression bitter. Or ere this, I should have fatted all the region kites with this slave's awful. Remorseless, treacherous, lecherous, kindless villain! 
Oh, vengeance. Why, what an ass am I? This is most brave, that I, the son of a dear father murdered, prompted to my revenge by heaven in hell, must, like a whore, unpack my heart with words and fall a-cursing like a very drab. A stallion. Fiapont. Foe. About my brains. Hum, I have heard that guilty creatures sitting at a play have, by the very cunning of the scene, been struck so to the soul that presently they have proclaimed their male factions. For murder, though it have no tongue, will speak with miraculous organ. I'll have these players play something like the murder of my father before mine uncle. I'll observe his looks. I'll tent him to the quick. If he do blench, I know my course. The spirit that I have seen may be a devil, and the devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. Yeah, and perhaps, out of my weakness and my melancholy, as he is very potent with such spirits, abuses me to damn me. I'll have grounds more relative than this. The play's the thing, wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king.